morning we're going to go to Galatians 2. The sign says 1 through 10, but I don't think we're going to get all 10 verses done. In fact, I know we're not. Um, so we're going to go 1 through 5 this week. Galatians 2, 1 through 5. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I'm guessing that in your Bible, right above Galatians 2, you have a title, possibly, that reads, Paul Accepted by the Apostles, or something of that nature. Is that correct? I don't think this is helpful. I think it's true. The apostles did accept Paul. They did. We'll look at this next week. But I, I don't believe that's the reason Paul went up to Jerusalem. And here's why I say that. If you go back through the entire the entirety of this letter so far, Paul has no doubt in his mind that he's preaching the true gospel. And if you go back to verses, if you go back to verse one, chapter one, verse ten. After Paul has just chastised the Galatians for accepting another gospel and for deserting Christ and tells them that if anybody preaches another gospel, let that person be accursed, be cut off. In verse 10, he makes the comment, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I'm not sure from verse 10 in chapter 1 to verse 1 and 2 in verse or chapter 2, Paul's had a change of heart. That he's suddenly wanting to go to Jerusalem to get the approval for his gospel from the apostles. He's already said that if anybody preaches another gospel, let them be cursed. So he's not going to go to Galit or go to Jerusalem and then come back with a different gospel if, it, if the church in Jerusalem says, Yeah, you got it wrong. I believe Paul goes to Galatians. To somewhat check on the church in Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem to check on the church in Jerusalem. And here's why I say that. If you remember, there have been false teachers coming down from Jerusalem into Galatia, into this area, proclaiming that his gospel is false. So the mother church is in, is in Jerusalem, and he's got people from that church, claiming to be from that church, coming down to him and preaching and teaching his churches a different gospel. So it's possible that in Paul's mind, he's like, wait a minute, I've got to go make sure that they're staying faithful, not the other way around. That's, that's how I view this. Because, I, again, I don't think Paul's going to change his mind if the Jerusalem church says, no, you're wrong. I believe Paul's in a fight for the gospel at this point, and he knows it. If you look at verse 5, that's what he says. We did not yield to submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He's on that gospel preservation mission to Jerusalem. And before we get to that, I want to look at the first two verses because there's a little bit of 
controversy, not really controversy, but there's two differing views around these first two verses that I want to look at briefly. Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was running, I was not running or had not run in vain. One New Testament scholar has called this, these two verses, primarily the first one, um, the most celebrated and complicated historical problem in the whole epistle, and perhaps in the whole New Testament. And here's why. Acts records four times that Paul went to Jerusalem. The first is in 9, 26 through 30, which is right after his conversion. And scholars believe corresponds to Galatians 1, 18 and 19, when Paul goes up to meet with Cephas for the 15 days. Then in Acts 11, 27 through 30, Paul and Barnabas go up again to Jerusalem, taking with them an offering, a gift from the church in Galatia to the church in Jerusalem because of the famine that's going to be coming. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas go back to Jerusalem for what is called the Jerusalem Council, which is dealing with the issue, finally, circumcision among the Gentiles. And then Acts 21 through 28 is Paul back in Jerusalem, making his way to Rome, getting arrested, and being shipped off to Rome. So here's the question that we have to answer. Does Galatians 2 correspond with Acts 11? Or does Galatians 2 correspond with Acts 15? There's troubles with both. In Acts 11, Paul and Barnabas are the only two mentioned going to Jerusalem. In Galatians 2, it's Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. Chapter 15 would seem to fit better here, but there's a problem with that. Paul, if you remember in this letter, is defending his gospel. He's saying that my gospel is not a gospel that I got from Jerusalem. It's one that I received directly from a revelation. If it's found out that there's a point in time where Paul went to Jerusalem but didn't tell anybody, does that help or hurt in this case in Galatians? It hurts his case, right? Because somebody can say, well, Paul, you didn't tell us the whole truth. Maybe when you went that second time, you were there for a lot longer, and you're trying to hide that. Also, the trip in Acts 11 fits better for the reason he's going up as a revelation. If you remember, Agabus comes down from Jerusalem and lays before Paul this idea that there are this, this revelation from the Spirit that there's going to be a famine and we need relief from that. So he goes up with Barnabas. In Acts 15, they're summoned. Remember, the church calls for delegates from the local congregations to go up. And Paul and Barnabas are chosen, and they take Titus with them. I believe that this is correlating with Acts 11. It doesn't matter which side you fall on. I've got problems that I have to try and deal with. And if you're in Acts 15, you've got problems that you've got to try and deal with. I just wanted to make you aware that there are historical and there are chronological issues with this section that people are debating. So just keep that in mind if you hear people talking about, well, I think Acts 11 and I think Acts 15. 
it doesn't really change everything. It's just that they've got to explain something. You've got to explain something. You've got to make up for these for these gaps in these directions. But in Acts in Galatians two two, Paul says, "I went up because of the revelation and said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain." As I said at the first part, we already know that Paul knows he has the true gospel. His illustration, I believe, of running in vain, if you can think of it this way with me, is a relay race with a baton. Okay, Paul has been doing his leg of the race and proclaiming the gospel that he has been given as a revelation from Jesus Christ. He has people from Jerusalem coming down, telling them that they are pretend, or telling him, well, no, you've got it wrong, you you know, Christians, the Gentiles, need to be circumcised as well. If that's the truth that the, that the Jerusalem church is putting forward, they're not running their leg of the race properly, are they? No, they're dropping the baton on theirs because they're not preaching and teaching the true gospel. So Paul goes up and he checks, I believe, to make sure that he's not running in vain, that he's not working against the church in Jerusalem, and that there's a potential for the church in Jerusalem to come down and undo what he's done. He's in a fight right here to make sure the church in Jerusalem is being true to the gospel message. I think if he'd gone up and sided with the false brothers at this point, he would have divided the church. And that would have ultimately undid what he had done in Galatia already. Imagine if the Jerusalem church puts out an edict that says, hey, yeah, by the way, Paul was wrong. You do need to be uh, circumcised. And now he's got false brothers coming down telling the churches, yeah, he's not right. Now he's got the church in Jerusalem telling these churches that he's not right. Now he's the one man standing fighting Jerusalem on his own. I, I believe that's what he's doing in this passage. Now it says later, and we'll look at it next week, that he that the church, the, the apostles, do extend to him the fellowship. They don't add anything to him. I believe that's really good for us. It's really good for everybody. But I don't think that's Paul's initial reason for going up here. But what he does in verses two or in chapter two, three through five, I think is interesting. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Though he was a Greek, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Ever read that and get the feeling that Titus is kind of like a test case? He's the guinea pig? He's taking Titus, a, a Gentile believer, up with him. And he's arguing against the false brothers in Jerusalem that, yeah, Gentile believers don't need to be circumcised. And you're either going to agree with me, and you're not going to have Titus circumcised, or you're going to try and force Titus to be circumcised. They, for, they, try, to Titus for, they try to force Titus in verse 5 to be circumcised. You see that. But I'm thinking here, if I'm Titus, like, I'm not on board with this. I don't want to be your test case, but okay, I'll go along to help preserve this. I don't know if that's what Titus was actually thinking, but I for myself kind of feel for him at this point. And he's like, yeah, Paul's test for the apostles. 
And, and picture this, he's taking them into, he's taking Titus right into the heart of Judaism at this point. So he's a Gentile believer who's already hated by the Jews. He's claiming to be a, a Christian, and he's uncircumcised. Paul is trying to get a message across here. But again, as we see, he's fighting so that the truth of the gospel might be, might be preserved, not only for us, but also for this church in Galatia. And forward, for the church as a whole. Verse 5 is kind of, I believe, the thesis statement of chapter 2. He is fighting so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. So what's the truth of the gospel that Paul's fighting for? I believe it's that there are no second-class citizens. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But he's He's fighting against these Jewish converts who believe that, that Gentile believers need to be circumcised. And what I believe these false teachers are saying is, well, you're not really a Christian unless you do this. He's fighting directly against legalism at this point as an outworking of a heart issue that says, I'm better than you because I'm circumcised and you're not. That's the heart issue that I believe he's working on. He's going to pick up on this again in chapter 5 of Galatians. That by accepting circumcision, by accepting anything other than faith in Christ, is a retreat and a return to slavery, but for which Christ has set us free. But my guess is right now that none of us are being forced to become a Jew to be a Christian. So we look at this passage and we're like, okay, what does this mean for you and me today? First, I think the first thing it means for us is we are always in a fight for the truth of the gospel. The church is not established for long here at all. Christ dies in 30 or 33, and this is written in the 50s. So we're talking 20 years. 20 years after Christ dies, Paul has to fight for the gospel already. I think we're naive to think that the further we get away from Christ, the less that we're going to have in this fight. If you turn to Jude 3 and 4, we are told that the very reason that Jude writes his letter is that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then he spends 12 verses detailing what these false teachers look like. In 2 Peter, Peter does the exact same thing, that he is telling us that there are false prophets coming up from among the people, the church. So Paul's use of the word or the phrase false brothers gives us the impression that these false teachers thought and were claiming to be Christians, but really weren't. So really the threat is arising from inside the church, not from outside the church. And I think that's something we need to keep in the front, in the forefront of our minds. Peter warns about people that sneak in, or Jude warns about people that are sneaking in, that are in the church, they've crept in unnoticed. False prophets in 2 Peter have rose up among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in false and destructive heresies. And in Matthew 24, Jesus warns about the same, the very same thing. The teachers are dealing, or the, the disciples are asking Jesus when. When is the end times going to come? What are the signs of the coming to the end of the age? 
And in verse 11, he says, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This is a constant fight that we are in. Not just for legalism, but for doctrine. For teachers coming into the church and leading us down a path that's not true. Paul was dealing with the Galatians. Jude and Peter were dealing with it. They wrote what's called Catholic letters. So if you notice, 2 Peter's not written to anybody directly. It's just written to saints. And Jude is the same way. That's written for us to think. To think on, to dwell on, to understand that this is not a problem that stopped at the end of the first century. In fact, I would argue that it's probably gotten worse as the church just splinters and splinters and splinters. So we need to be listening and paying attention to what we're hearing and what we're reading and what we're watching and what we're taking in from people claiming to be prophets from God. But what I said earlier, too, is there are no second-class Christians. We're going to spend more of our time here. There's no first-class, second-class, third-class Christian. There's no, I'm a better Christian than you. You're not good enough because of this. You're not good enough because of that. This is the truth of the gospel that Paul is fighting against. This is the, the heart claim that I that are the heart position that I mentioned earlier. The question they're asking is, what does it take to be a real Christian? That's what they're doing. And the Jews are saying, well, you need to be circumcised. You need to become a Jew and then you're actually a Christian. So how does this play out today? I think if we're honest with ourselves... And with each other, we are at one point in time find ourselves potentially in three categories. It may not be the attitude of our hearts all the time, but I think we've been there. The first category, I think, is the person who knows they're a follower of Christ, but they're constantly being beat down by the devil because of things that they still struggle with. In Revelation, John calls the devil the accuser of our brothers. He loves to come right alongside you and say, yeah, but do you remember this? Do you remember when you said this? Do you remember when you thought that? There's no possible way you could be a Christian because of what you did. Has that ever happened to anyone? Or am I alone? He loves it. He wants to get in your head. He wants to get in my head. And he wants to tell you you're not really saved because of this. And then, what's worse, is he says, see those guys over there? They've got it together. See, you'll, you'll never be like that. You're not good enough because you don't do what they do. He loves to do this. Because then what happens in your head, what happens in my head, in my heart, in your heart, is you start to resent that person because you can never be like that person. And the devil is loving it. He splits us over this. And I think if we're honest, if you're honest with yourself, we have found ourselves here more often than we care to admit. Comparing ourselves. It came up downstairs at Sunday school if you were there. We play the comparison game. But then there's the flip side of that same coin. These are the, these are the individuals I think that struggle with pride the most. The devil comes alongside that person and says, you should be glad you're not like him. 
or you're not like her. You are really doing well. You should be proud of yourself. And I think there's a lot to be said to, be a, to being a disciplined Christian. I'm not, I am not at all saying that we should just forsake being disciplined, forsake the disciplines of reading our Bible, forsake the disciplines of praying. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is don't listen to the devil when he says you're better than that person because of that is an issue of pride that we, again, if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle with it. And the devil loves, just absolutely loves, to get into churches with these attitudes and split us over it. The devil loves nothing more than to watch a church divide over petty issues. Anything he can make, anything he can do to make the church look fractured. He loves it. The lie the devil here is telling us is you're, um, you should be glad you're not like that person over there. Your church attendance, your Bible reading, your clean past really sets you apart. And I think it's this second attitude that's the one that gets us in most trouble with the world, with those outside of the church, because I believe they pick up on it really, really quickly. Really quickly. They start to believe that their life is so messed up that those people over there in that church would never accept me the way I am. So I need to clean myself up, get my life on track, and then maybe, just maybe, I'll be good enough. I think that is what is going on in the heart of these false brothers coming out of this passage. They are trying to bring true Christians into slavery by telling them, you're not good enough because you don't do this. And that, what do they think? That third attitude I mentioned, that the, the non-believers, they begin to believe that their life is too messed up. Is, a, is another heart attitude that we need to look at and apply the gospel to. In response to all three of the attitudes of the heart, Paul did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. That anyone who desires to be justified in God does so by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the truth of the gospel that Paul's fighting for straight through the book of Galatians. How can you be justified before God? How can you know that you are a true Christian? All three of these bad attitudes, I believe, need the gospel. So to the first person I mentioned, the first person who the devil is constantly beating down, to the first person who the devil is constantly causing you to compare yourself to one another. Read Romans 8. Romans 8 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No matter what the devil brings in front of you, if you are in Christ, God will not condemn you for it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can bring a charge against you because you've been justified by God and God is the one who justifies. Because of Christ Jesus, you are a child of God. And as a child, an heir. An heir to everything that Christ has. 
He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, y'all. We are an heir to Christ Jesus. I encourage you to read Romans 8 if this is something you've struggled with. Prayerfully meditate over the next couple of days and weeks because if you are in Christ, no matter what the devil tells you, it is true. So the second person I would encourage you to read Romans 3, 9 through 24, and Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Don't worry about writing all these down. I have a handout for you at the end. Romans 3, 9 through 24, and Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and recognize that you do not have righteousness apart from Christ. And this is not a way for Paul to beat us down. This is not a way for Paul to say, you pathetic person. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul is trying to elevate Christ by showing you that we have absolutely no other hope apart from Christ. That's what Paul is doing in Romans 3 and in Ephesians 2. This is the great equalizer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That no human being can stand and claim a right standing before God apart from Christ. That's the equalizer. There's no one righteous. Not even one. Like I said earlier, this isn't to say that your discipline in Bible reading and involvement in church is not a good thing. It is. It's the way that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it is a sign of maturity. But it in no way adds to your righteous standing before God. And it in no way makes you better than anybody else. So you can tell that to the devil the next time he tries to rear pride's ugly head in your heart and says, you're better than they are. Scripture tells us we're not. We are righteous because it's Christ's righteousness given to us. But to the third, third person who thinks that they can never be good enough to come to Christ, you're right, you can't. I can't either. Nobody sitting in this church can That's what makes the good news the good news. Because if the good news was, well, you know, get yourself a little bit better, that's not good news. I know my heart. You know your heart. There's no good news if it relies on me. I fail every day. Charles Spurgeon once said, if I could fall from grace, I'd fall a thousand times a day. It's true of me. I think if you're honest, it's probably true of you too. In Luke 5, Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the scribes. He calls Levi, and Levi's a tax collector. And Levi makes this great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors, and others reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Paul's not, or Jesus is not saying that you Pharisees are too righteous to need me. He's saying you think you're too righteous to need me. Jesus Christ came and he died for sinners. So that he would get the honor and the glory for what he's done. 
God wants you to come to Christ and mess it all. Because that's the only way he gets all the glory. He's not asking you to clean yourself up. That's moralism. You can't clean yourself up. You need to rest in that. Rest in the fact that Christ is your righteousness. His perfect life is the only reason that we are justified before God. His life, his death, and his resurrection. Stop telling yourself you need to be better. You can't be better. You need to rest in Christ. And he will give you the righteousness that you need. And he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will work his obedience and his life out in you. I think it's Ephesians that Paul says, work out your own salvation. Then he goes on to say, because it's God, the one who works in you and causes you to work and to walk in the things that he's prescribed for you to do. God wants you to come to Christ and mess it all because that's how he gets all the glory in saving sinners. Next week, we're going to look at the rest of this fight the results of Paul's fight for the gospel truth and see how it should affect our lives toward others, both believers and non-believers alike. I want to encourage you this week, something, the Lord poked at your heart something this week, to just seek him in prayer over it. Ask the Lord to show you the condition of your heart in relation to the attitude I mentioned. As we leave here today, there's going to be handouts that have the, the scriptures listed that you can read through, that you can prayerfully consider. But this is not something that we can just ignore. These are hard attitudes that severely affect our individual lives. They severely affect the life of the church. And I believe it is the Lord is calling us to deal with this. Let's pray. Father, I know I was challenged this week as you brought this to my mind, looking at these, the attitudes of these false brothers and, or these teachers that were claiming that to be right before God there was something that needed to be added to the gospel. This hard attitude that you're only a real Christian if you do this, 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 and this. You're only a true Christian if you don't do this, 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 and this. Though this attitude, I believe, is prevalent in your church today. We have this idea that we're better than somebody because whatever the reason may be. Lord, help us to see that there are no second-class Christians. Lord, help us to see that the truth of the gospel is we are all a mess and need Christ and Christ alone. Father, I just pray for our congregation this week as we go about our week that you would recall to mind that you would reveal our hearts to us. And Lord, that you would give us the humility needed to approach those individuals that you know, maybe we've been sitting against that don't even realize that maybe we're holding wrong attitudes that we shouldn't be holding. Maybe we're harboring resentment because we think they're better than we are and we need to seek forgiveness for that.
Father, may we enter into relationships with one another that help us to see that we are all sinners saved by grace. Or that we can be open and honest and transparent with one another. Father, I just pray for our church as we move forward into the coming weeks and months and years as we enter into this holiday time when we gather as family and friends. And Father, I just pray that relationships with men or that we can get past these hard attitudes that seek to divide us. The devil just loves to use against one another. Father, our church would be one that declares the glory of the Lord in it. Ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>